2: This is Adam McKay, and you are listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology.
1: Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture,
2: technology,
0: and rock and roll.
2: Now... On with the show. Everybody needs somebody. Hello, Dickers. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from the San Francisco headquarters of Pantheon Podcasts. And I need you, you, you. Shout-out time. I want to give... A big shout out to a couple of our longtime diggers that have been supporting us on Patreon for a while now. Please give it up to Sarah Cody, Kevin Evans, Suzette Rigo, and Anthony Marinaccio. I will be doing more of this. So if you are a Patreon member, keep an ear open on future episodes. If you are not a patron at this point, uh, please uh, check out our Patreon site. Um, just To help out with overhead costs and uh, getting this network off the ground, uh, go to uh, patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. All right, no news uh, this week, but uh, I do have a few friendly reminders. Uh, Just a quick rundown on all the rock and roll goodness on the Pantheon Podcasting Network today. Rock and roll archaeology, our episodic telling of the entire history of rock and roll. Rock and roll librarian Shelley Sorensen breaks down important music bios. Real Rock with the Reverend Andy King, who picks a rock and movie to have fun with. Art of Rock with Kosh, who interviews the people who make the visual contributions to all of this great music. Miss Pamela's Pajama Party, where the world's most famous groupie tells her stories and exposes us all to many musical secrets. Muses with Shanti and Lynx, are Canadian lovelies that will do anything for good rock and roll and tell you all about it. Vinyl Snob with Dave Whitaker breaks down all things going on in the resurgent vinyl record business. History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, who gives quick and easily digestible takes in heavy metal, punk, and prog. Who Cares About the Rock Hall with Joe Cozala and Kristen Studdard tearing down and building up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. The Career Musician by Nomad, who imparts his vast wisdom on how to actually make a living in today's music world. This podcast kills fascists, a show strictly exposing protest music from today and yesterday. Of course, uh, there's this show, Deeper Digs in Rock. Our newest entry, Make It Stop with Heather Mack and Mike Dunn, a show dedicated to dissecting terrible albums. And last but certainly not least is Rock Candy with Ashley and Maggie giving out sweet treats from the world of music while drinking thematic beers. Quick reminder to check us out at Facebook uh, at the RNRAP, Instagram at RNR Archaeology, and on Twitter at RNR Archaeology. Uh, if you already engage with us on the interwebs, then uh, please, as we Really enjoy and love, and I know you guys do. Keep on doing it. Tell a friend. This week's show is sponsored by CBD Vermont, which partners with organic farms in Vermont to produce organically grown hemp used in full spectrum extracts available for sale at CBDVermont.com. Use the code DDIR to get 15% off all of their products. CBD Vermont guarantees the farms a price per plant and provide cultivation support throughout the growing season. There are a lot of CBD products out there, so how do you know what you're getting? Well, CBD Vermont tests all of its extracts to ensure you're getting the right amount of CBD and other cannabinoids, and of course, no unwanted toxins. Plus, each batch is traced to the Vermont farm where it was grown and the hemp cultivar that was extracted. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. I'm telling you, it works for me and it should work on you as well. Go to cbdvermont.com and use the code DDIR at checkout to get 15% off. Okay, that's it for this week. Let's get to our guest.
0: The streets of Soho in the rain. He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fox. Gonna get a big dish of eef chow me. I, well,
2: yes, under. that's the dry wit and acerbic lyrics of Warren Zevon unfold display. I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's. His hair was perfect. That's my favorite line. A song Warren said was a dumb song for smart people. He made a lot of songs. Not dumb, but maybe all for smart people. With us today is author C.M. Cushions, who has written Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon. An awesome new biography about the once nicknamed Great Offender because of his tight relationship with Jackson Brown. Our guest digs deep into the life of Zivon from early childhood where he was the product of a Mormon mother and small-time gangster Jewish father uh, to being noticed early on uh, for his musical talents by folks such as Igor Stravinsky. He's picked up early by the aging Everly Brothers as a touring man and even worked with both separately after their split in the early 70s. Once he turns his full attention to the L.A. pop rock scene, he's quickly embraced by Jackson Brown, members of the Eagles, Bonnie Raitt, the entirety of Fleetwood Mac, and Linda Ronstan, who first puts him on the map when she records his Poor, Poor, Pitiful Me song for her 1978 Simple Dreams album. The same year as Warren's seminal album Excitable Boy is released. And where he should have been catapulted into the stratosphere of rock stars, Zevon constantly sabotaged his own career with drugs, alcohol, and the usual rock star excesses, possibly to the point of mental illness. In 1984, he did the rehab trip, and this time it worked for good. Well, at least until life dealt him an irreparable blow. Newly sober, he worked with members of REM and created the band Hindu Love Gods, uh, throughout the 90s, he began to be recognized as a real musical genius by the general public, as well as an all-around rock and roll raconteur, most famously with numerous appearances on number 1 fan David Letterman's late-night talk show. In 2002, Zivon was diagnosed with late-stage mesothelioma. First, he fell off the wagon after 17 years, and then he got to work on his last album, The Wind. He died on September 7th, 2003, at just 56 years old. The following Grammys saw his last work win five statues, including Song of the Year, Keep Me in Your Heart. Nothing's Bad Luck is C.M. Cushing's first book, but he has been a freelance journalist for 15 years, worked at MTV and the NAACP. He is a musician himself, so let's get to it. Diggers, I give you... CM Cushing. Cushings, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you so much for having me, Christian. I am a fan of the podcast, and I was looking oh, well, forward to for quite yeah. a while. yeah. I'm, well, I'm great.
2: All, we're lucky to have you here today. It's, a, it's a big book, uh, a big project to uh, be talking about. So I understand this book was a labor of love for you and that it took seven years to get together and write. So first, tell us the the whys and hows of writing the book on what what some might consider. You know, this is a general rock and roll show, so so some might consider you know a lower tier artist in the annals of rock and roll.
1: I can totally understand that, and I love that you even pointed that out. Uh, the first thing is uh, I am a huge Warren Zevon fan, and I am a musician myself. I'm also a piano player, so I've oh, always okay. kind of just
2: had... like Warren. I right. mm-hmm.
1: yep. So I've always kind of gravitated towards singer songwriters and piano-based rock. I always found that very interesting, the jazz guy and everything. So I fell in love with his music as soon as I started to hear it. But I was late to the party. uh, I'm trying to think. I became a fan of his probably about 10 years ago. And I suppose because I am a writer... So
2: after he he passed away.
1: Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know much about him. Mm -hmm. But all it took was listening to a couple of songs I knew was something very, very different and very unique, especially with the lyrics. I was frustrated personally because there really wasn't a lot of material written about his creative process, uh, his instrumentation, and in particular, a lot of the stuff he did in the 80s and 90s when he was self-produced. So I was going to write an article on it and pitch it to a magazine, found a bunch of uh, producers and engineers, people who had worked with him who still had contact information. A lot of those guys are still working, you know, and I sent out emails to each one, maybe literally like 15 to 20. And I thought if I have maybe two or three of Warren's old producers who talk with me, I can do a feature story. I have never had it happen where my inbox was everybody saying yes. Right away. Right away, every email, I'm paraphrasing, but it was all the producers you see in the book. Mm -hmm. They all said working with Warren was amazing. It was a life-changing experience, all this awesome stuff. And it became apparent that it was going to be significantly longer than one article. <laughs> right. So the first draft was right. 600 pages. We had to prune it down.
2: Whoa, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a very dense book.
1: So Thank you. Uh, and, I think and, that's a good thing, I think. Uh, it
2: is, it is. I mean, it's a full telling, and I know I'm not the only one to say that. There's a lot of good press out there uh, for uh, for the book, so sounds like you have uh, have made a dent uh, in the universe here, at least in the Warren Zebon <laughs> universe. So okay. So I think it's unfair that I said, a, a lower tier artist, because I, I think no, just I in, in sales wise, you know, a lot of people don't uh, recognize him. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, most everybody knows uh, uh, Werewolves of London uh, that, you know, is interested in rock music, but maybe not too much deeper than that. They they may know that uh, Linda Ronstadt covered some of his songs and stuff like that, you know, a giant uh, selling artist, but uh, but yeah. they may not know his whole story. So, you know, what I found really of interest. And I learned
1: yeah, I'd love a lot to know from what you book. thought of it, especially a musicologist like yeah, yourself. I'm well, you thankful. Yeah. Well,
2: the first thing that I found really interesting was Warren Zevon was born half Jewish and half Mormon. Now, yeah. that is quite a cocktail for you.
1: His parents were uh, an interesting match. Uh, and to be honest, the idea that his mother, Beverly, was Mormon and came from uh, a family that could be traced all the way back to the Latter day Saints movement, I'll be honest. That was an easier thing to research because all those documents. Oh, it's all there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, The Mormons
2: are known for their genealogy.
1: It was very helpful, Mm -hmm. seriously. And then with uh, his dad, William Stumpy Zivon, and Uh, his family. uh, Yeah,
2: (laughs) a a, a bit of a mobster.
1: Yep, the real deal. He came over here with his family when he was a kid, and it was uh, the Zivatovskis from Kiev.
0: Right, right, and you right. get
1: you pretty much get the full immigrant experience in uh, Warren's dad's story, and it was impoverished, and it was a lot of brothers, and two of them, including William, pretty much hit the road way before the Great Depression because they just didn't want to live in the poverty. Yeah, the went poverty Chicago, of
2: uh, of New York.
1: You know, at, they at came off time. the
2: boat and pretty much went into the Jewish quarter and uh, were, grew up there, and then I think he and his brother moved to Chicago, right
1: got it. They went to Chicago because that's what you would see necessarily, you know, in newspapers and things like that. New York wasn't working for them. Chicago was another glamorous city. Mm-hmm. And they did. As kids, they were very young and they weren't able to handle guns or anything. But they met Sam Giancana and they yeah. started <laughs> the errands. the Giancana crime family. Right? The real deal. Yeah, yeah. the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of information about William Zivon for long gaps of time. But he was Mickey Cohen's best man in Vegas.
0: A and then very he had, famous uh, gangster.
1: Very famous, the matinee idol gangster, yeah, Yeah. and uh, had ended up in California where he owned a bunch of carpet stores. They were real carpet stores, but there was also... I was was going to ask,
2: this wasn't a money laundering
1: operation. Well, it, it is in the book. I think uh, it was Mickey Cohen's personal bodyguard was always in there. He was yeah. always hanging out. So there were rumors that there was other stuff going on. But he was double the age of uh, Warren's mother. His much older man, and they had a very turbulent relationship. Mm-hmm. But I made it a point of saying, you know, if you look for dichotomy in Warren's life and work, his parents were a very odd pairing to begin with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think he got a little bit from both of them, if you look at his lyrics, I would think. Uh, I, you know, I
2: think you're right. Both. Uh you know, It's funny. I mean, I grew up in the Mormon Church, uh, left by the time I was 12. But there, there is this weird sort of chemistry or or social structure which is not too dissimilar from Judaism. Uh, uh Not to delve too deep into no, the, but it's the, interesting the, to
1: go to go in on that part of it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah
2: that it's not to go too deep into the the mythology of Mormonism or the religion of Mormonism, depending on your take. But they believe that. That the lost 13th tribe of Judaism uh, moved to America and that's the basis of their religion um, and so in some ways they have this close-knit sort of a social structure not too dissimilar from the diaspora that the <clears throat> Jewish culture had to endure uh, for for the last couple of
1: thousand years that is an awesome Thing to point out, honestly, because I don't delve too deeply in the book. No, but knowing no you actually Warren, moved through his Warren life. Warren was brought up quickly. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to yeah. get to the rock and roll. But yeah, he was yeah, brought up yeah. with a very stern household based on what you just described. So it's cool putting it into that context. Yeah, Especially someone who was rebellious from the youngest possible <laughs> age.
2: Yes, yes. Now, and and then he also grew up in the Central Valley. Uh, yeah. In the city of Fresno, which it's a spiritual I mean, home is L.A.? Yeah, yeah, but but Fresno is uh, you know as a, a young person, you know, especially uh, in the fifties and sixties, this is a, a migrant town, a farming community where you know its central location is you know to uh, process the growth that's being done there, the the vegetables and the fruits and and then mm-hmm. disperse them out through uh, through the rest of California, if not the country. Um, there's not a lot of um, Let us say culture uh, there. Now, I think he follows his father to Los Angeles and by 1966, while still in high school, he gets into the music business first as a duo called Lyman and Cybele,
1: right? Lyman Sabelle, you got it. Okay. The one thing I want to add in super quick, and we can go back to this one sure, sure. There's one major well. thing that happened during that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warren's parents separated and then got back together multiple times. Right. And Beverly, I think, would usually end up back with her parents in Fresno, where she had met Williams, Yvonne. Mm-hmm. But William moved all over the place, and Warren would often bounce between both houses. During at least one stint in junior high school is when his music acumen got picked up by one of his teachers ah,
2: Igor Stravinsky.
1: he was able to hang out with Igor Stravinsky a couple of times him and his protege Robert Kraft right. now Warren was very very uh, adamant not to say I studied under him it was more discussion but it stayed with him his entire entire life seeing this amazing composer who had lost none of his intelligence taking him seriously but also having a mansion in Hollywood to be able to merge those two things And I think that that atmosphere stayed with Warren his whole life, the composer who gets to live in Hollywood. Because he still was a bit of that for his entire life. I think that that was totally a life-changing experience for him. And that was before he went on to high school and was really into music at that point.
2: So that was the dream he was chasing, was what Igor Stravinsky showed him in in his career path.
1: I believe so. The Mm -hmm. success, Mm -hmm. you know, the prestige of getting to be this great composer and yet still having this Hollywood mansion. It diffused so much of that imagery to him, I think. Because it never really went away. He downplayed his classical ambitions, but throughout his entire life, there were Stravinsky and Beethoven biographies all over his apartments. So it never went away.
2: Interesting, interesting. Um, Do you know why Stravinsky took an interest in him?
1: Sure, I couldn't find the name of the teacher, unfortunately. But it was one of the band teachers that warren had and warren was in the you know band so
2: obviously he had innate talent from a young age Uh, i believe he was a
1: prodigy yeah yeah i know his father
2: would tell everybody that his son was a you know a a genius musician
1: self-taught on the piano which william Zevon had collected in a poker game (laughs) and then uh, as a teenager begged pleaded and bargained for his first electric guitar and when he was in junior high school one of his uh, music teachers moonlit or moonlighted, however you want to pronounce it. His second job was that he was a session trumpeter for classical recordings in the studio. And he was able to arrange it, I believe, through Robert Kraft, the protege of Stravinsky, to bring Warren over there. So he was brought over as a prodigy kid to be taken seriously. And even Kraft wrote about it in his own memoirs later on which I thought was uh, amazing that he remembered meeting someone so young.
2: Yeah, I'm sure they probably met lots of quote-unquote prodigies uh, at exactly. that time. Uh, but then uh, Warrens kind of stood out. So
1: Yeah, precocious so, to say the least. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, so like I said, by 66, while he's still in high school, I think he's 16, uh, mm-hmm. he's, yeah. he gets into the music business, right?
1: Almost by accident. He had never put down an instrument. Always playing the piano and strummed his guitar at school. Uh, shy kid, but got, you know, the att- uh, attention of girls with that. Well, had been I, is it, isn't band. that
2: why we all start in music?
1: That is the reason anybody, <laughs> any guy picks up an instrument at some point firstly. That's really what it is. Yeah, but yeah. He, he had already been in bands and accidentally met uh, a transfer student named Violet Sant'Angelo, who had just moved from Chicago. And they had a very mm-hmm. similar background mm-hmm. and started a fun folk duo, just for fun. And another one of the kids, remember, you go to you go to any high school in Hollywood and the kids are all the children of, of the entertainment parents. people. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he's sitting at a, you know just normal high school, but one of their uh, fellow students who ended up being at a family party is a child actor whose mother worked for uh, White Whale Records. Right. So within the, you know a week of meeting another classmate, they, Warren and, and Violet, actually still teenagers, were in a music executive's office. You know, while still students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and he got, uh, I'm sorry, okay. no, they, but that's where ahead. it started they, right they, there. Yeah,
2: they got a, a record contract from White Whale, right?
1: That's correct. They had two singles, second one didn't do too well. But the thing that made the biggest difference in Warren's life is that he's still a teenager, but he scores a second contract through White Whale, not as a performer, but as a house songwriter. Right. I don't know if they necessarily do that anymore, but Jackson Brown started as a house songwriter. A lot of them did mm-hmm. to write the hits for other people. Warren was, like you said, 16, going on 17, and he got two contracts. The first one was to perform with Violet as yeah. Lime and Sabelle. That was the name of their duo. And their template was kind of like Ian and Sylvia, that you know, the cute folk couple.
0: Right.
1: But his second contract for Ishmael Music was the one I think probably meant the most to him because writing was always the big, big, big passion, and that was that contract was just for him.
2: And well, he knew that from, from an early age, that uh, I being so, a writer yeah. is where he wanted to go. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, that first song. I, I believe it's called Follow Me.
1: Follow Me was the first thing of his that ever got recorded. Yeah. He wrote that with Violet. They did write it together, but he, well, it, it, in the book I go into it a little bit more. One of the things that I think Warren fought for was the credit as sole writer and he always tried to push the compositions he had written himself but she and he wrote the first few things together until he broke off He's credited with that being his very, very first song and it did do well. They even performed it on television.
2: Yeah, and it's a kind of an unusual song. It's it's like kind of a folky psychedelic ish sort of early song from sixty six.
1: It is. And it's weird to have a song that has these psychedelic overtones before the big electric push. Now you said sixty six, absolutely. But look at the bands that come out and the music that comes out with that starting point and it goes, yeah. you know, fuzz tone and, and full psychedelic after the fact. Warren was trying to compose that sound acoustically and keep in mind that at the time he really hadn't been affected by the drugs and alcohol. He was so young, no hallucinogens or anything. He knew how to make that type of music without any other kind of influence and it was the first thing that he ever recorded. So it's important, it's it's great that you pointed that one out too.
2: So now he um, begins to dive in into the, the music business in the latter half of the 1960s. Uh, I think uh, he uh, befriends some of uh, the quote-unquote famous m- musicians at the time, which, you know, uh, a lot of people don't recognize. This was all just a big club. There wasn't a lot of money in it. It was just what everybody wanted to do uh, and hang out and not have a real job. Um, people there was a lot know, of
1: that and a know. lot of word of mouth, too. Yeah,
2: yeah, and that's the interesting thing. that starts at this point and then really begins to grow as, as we get into the 70s and, and he becomes more well-known. Is the contemporaries around him recognize that he's somebody to pay attention to, right?
1: That started almost immediately. And it's awesome that you pointed that out. The first thing that happened is, and it was dual when he was still with Lyman Sabell, when Warren was part of the folk duo, those two contracts got the attention of two different people. Mm. The first one is uh, one of the founders of the Beach Boys, David Marks. Mm -hmm. He had heard Follow Me on the radio, and as you had just indicated, Christian, it did have a very unique psychedelic sound. So he wanted to meet the artist who had put that track out because he had left the Beach Boys and he was still doing his solo stuff. He wanted to know who wrote that. Secondly, Warren's songwriting had gotten the attentions of White Whale's biggest act, which is the members of the Turtles. Uh, The
0: Turtles, right, right.
1: They loved him. And Warren's the youngest one. These guys are all in their early 20s, and he's the little kid brother with the big mouth. (laughs) And he attracts the attention of two very noted local rock stars. And they don't want just you know they do They they want to hang out. Right? right, Oh, they wanted to party with him immediately. So he Warren had mentors almost during every part of his career until he got older and kind of switched roles
2: Uh, and became a mentor himself. Right?
1: Right? Very much so. He downplayed it, but it was told to me. A lot of the younger musicians looked up to him that way.
2: So, in 1969, he does release a solo album, but it's a miserable failure, right?
1: It is released to the sound of one hand clapping. That was Warren's <laughs> remark. What, that was his, his, <laughs> uh, his, was his line point, about right, it. Right,
2: right. What do you think the lessons were that he took away from the, that 1960s period?
1: Well, what's funny is that I think that a lot of the themes and the, and the things that happened to Warren in his career, in microcosm at that age, were the same lessons he applied to everything that would follow. He learned quickly the importance of PR. He learned quickly how to conduct yourself in the studio. And thanks to hanging out with both, you know, David Marks and Howard Kalin and all those guys, they gave him a lot of tips on what to do for royalties and residuals. He got a finishing school before his first solo album even came out, whether it was good or whether it was bad.
0: Mm.
1: He was a pretty polished veteran by the time his real first album came out in 76, because he right. had gone through right. his life lesson. Yeah, he knew what he was doing by the time 76 came along, because he had lived every tiny element that a musician can have over that first decade.
2: Yeah, because uh, the album uh, fails, although I think the uh, the song She Quit Me was in Midnight Cowboy, if I remember
1: right. Yeah, that's the one. He, he Warren released the first solo album for Imperial Records, thanks to the producer of Lyman Sabell. The biggest thing that could have happened to Warren when Lyman Sabell was just this very fleeting thing at the beginning of his career was the producer that had been assigned to him and Violet. Bones Howe is his name. Yeah. Howe was an engineer who had only co-produced a few things, but he had worked with the Mamas and the Papas, and he had yeah, worked California with California Dreamin'.
2: I think he was the engineer.
1: <laughs> he was up and coming more than yeah. any of the artists he was working with because of who he had worked with. He had already worked with Elvis, mm-hmm. and he loved Warren, and he loved showing him, you know, new instruments and seeing what he was working on compositionally. He was not available to produce Warren's first solo album, and he knew Warren was going for a harder rock edge. He brought in Kim Fowley.
2: Oh, famously from the Runaways.
1: That's right. He mm-hmm. discovered Joan Jett in the Runaways. This was yeah. before that. Mm-hmm. But Kim was a really interesting character, and he to say the was least. the next mentor. He was the next <laughs> mentor for Warren. He taught mm-hmm. him the importance of persona. Yeah. But he walked off uh, the album, wanted dead or alive, and told Warren to finish it himself. And I think it's funny you said, what lessons did he learn? That was the biggest one. Wow. Warren would spend the next 20 years of his life fighting for the autonomy that he got with that first album, even though it was a dud. And he used those lessons much, much better later when he when he got to do it again.
2: Interesting. Okay. All right. I get that. So, uh, like we said, the, the album uh, is a miserable failure, so he becomes a side man. But this thing, is, it does
1: have a couple of cool tracks that he used for scrap later. Wanted Dead or Alive is back in print, and I have to add this, the title track... Well, first you said, uh, She Quit Me. There was a remake of that that was used in Midnight Cowboy. So that got him attention. Mm -hmm. And this is fun. The song Wanted Dead or Alive wasn't used in anything until a few years ago where it popped up in an episode of Californication. (laughs) And I had never heard that song used anywhere else. It was really hard to find.
2: Oh, I think we'd both agree that uh, Warren Thiebaud's songs uh, being used, uh, licensed for films uh, and television uh, in the future will, will be an ongoing thing.
1: I think you'll see his stuff used for that, absolutely, because it hits all the right notes, and compositionally, you know, you have a filmmaker like Scorsese, some of his films don't even have original scores. He knows how to utilize pop music yeah. to great effect. Yeah, He used Warren once, and you could use so much of Warren's stuff to emphasize other dramatic scenes, because I think he always had a cinematic feel to his songwriting anyway.
2: I agree, both musically and lyrically,
1: yes, yeah, yeah.
2: So he... Um... Ends up becoming uh, the keyboardist
1: for the Everly Brothers,
2: uh, yep. uh, working for them, and then when they broke up, individually, right?
1: That's another one. The, 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 the first few decades were populated by these mentor figures. Uh, Warren, thanks to David Marks from the Beach Boys, was introduced to the Everly Brothers. They needed a band leader for their yeah, musical comeback tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, Warren sh- was able to show them and demonstrate that he could play any piano style that they would need, even though it was you know country rock and the old hits. And Warren was able to flex his band leader muscles by doing the charts and arrangements. And that was it. I mean, that was a finishing school for the road. He learned a lot about being on tour and it got him back into the studio after Wanted Dead or Alive didn't do anything. Most importantly is that he was introduced to the guitarist for that tour. He hired... Wadi Wachtel, who is really one of oh, the greatest huge. session guitarists in, in rock history, the, the, and
2: that's how they the, met. Maybe the greatest uh, session guitar, certainly in the LA scene.
1: Uh, and you want to know the best part? He's a really nice guy. <laughs> oh, Waddy walked in? Oh, yes. Oh, God. Now, he's yeah. very funny, and he has an now, amazing you memory, talk and and he remembered everything. Yeah, I,
2: you got to talk to him a couple of times. In fact, I, I believe you r- ran into him after you had interviewed him uh, I bumped on bumped into him, him bumped in a hotel.
1: Yeah. I, mean. I think he was surprised that someone would recognize him not on stage or anything like that, but he has a very unique look. Uh, as soon as yeah, I had that, that, that up, crazy
2: curly hair and those little granny glasses. How can you miss that?
1: He's always looked like that. But then again, <laughs> Brian Mays looked the same since 1970. So,
2: true, you know. true, true, true. Well, once you have a persona and it works, it's best to stick with that, huh?
1: Well, it depends. <laughs> See, it depends on the artist. We have to ask David Bowie or Warren Zevon what they would what they would oh, think.
2: Oh, wow! Now there's a, <laughs> an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Warren constantly was trying to change his persona too, right?
1: I personally think he was always trying to change it. And, you know, time goes very quickly. And when you look at the chronology of his career and the hiatuses that happened because of contracts and personal problems, he had so many interests outside of music. He loved all these books and all this classical stuff. And I think he needed to craft a persona that he was comfortable with early on. So, you know, once he becomes friends with Jackson Brown, I know we'll get to that and and how he got with Electra Asylum, all of that, he had a persona which was like this graham green film noir kind of troubadour character almost like a hoagie carmichael but for a modern era for very la yeah and he crafted that in the way he dressed and how he spoke in interviews and he would name drop the books he'd be reading it was all intentional but i think that that got to him personally and i think he ran with some of those personas off stage for a very very long time you saw less of that later post sobriety where Warren Zevon was kind of sort of a persona just for other people to emulate afterwards. You know, he was much more comfortable later. But he went through all these little stages, especially in the late 70s and 80s, where you see, and you look at the original criticism and the reviews, and a lot of people were scratching their heads saying, what happened to the the last Warren Zevon we saw with the last tour?
2: Well, you know, famously, this is the, uh, the Alice Cooper situation, where, uh, huh. you know, the character... Takes over the man, yes. which is supposed to remain on stage, and uh, you know all kinds of horrible things begin to uh, to occur in the real life. Whereas you mentioned David Bowie, who every couple of years would completely and utterly kill off the persona and create a new, a completely new uh, persona. So maybe maybe that was a better way to survive the uh, the entertainment business than to actually. Become and indulge yourself into this raconteur, uh, piano playing, hard drinking, hard living, noir type uh, character that he invented,
1: huh? Absolutely, I think he was happier once he didn't have to live up to it. But you know, once Warren was more of a cult figure and did a lot of solo touring in the smaller venues, but the very tight set list, great music, in you know late '80s and into the '90s. Uh, he didn't necessarily have a persona at that point, per se. It was just Warren. It was just, it was just Warren. It was mm-hmm. this playful, almost curmudgeonly elder statesman of rock who kind of was very sly about it, and he wouldn't have to tell you the details of all the crap he had been through. He just kind of wore it, as, you know, the way that he would talk and the way he would do his banter. He just seemed so much more comfortable being that version of himself later on, whether or not there was an audience or whether or not there were the big contracts with it. That was the persona that kind of stuck, and I think that's why the music got so much. Me personally, I think the music got much more personal. I think it got more focused and almost more spiritual at that point.
2: I think um, you know we we all grow into ourselves, uh, maybe at different rates. And perhaps, uh, you know, obviously he had gotten sober, and we'll get into that. And that certainly helps. Uh, and, you know, w- once you, you have proven yourself a few times and, uh, you know, you you can look back and say, wow, I, I've had some success, I have a catalog to, to depend on, um, I have recognition, I have friends, I have contemporaries and peers that respect me. Um, yeah, maybe you get more comfortable with yourself. Uh, and, I, and I think it's obvious that early on, he wasn't comfortable with himself
1: i don't think he was comfortable with himself at all and i think that he revealed a lot of that not only in the lyrics of the music at the time but also in interviews he would give you can tell so much about i guess i guess it would be any artist but i was focused you know for the first yeah. time on one artist and reading what they had to say if you look at what he is saying and not saying in interviews what is purposely left out of it is almost just as important as what's there Mm -hmm. And I think that was a comfort level, too. I don't know if that necessarily would answer it, but I think he was more open to talking about things during a certain time of his life and career, and he would be more guarded later. Gotcha, gotcha.
2: So by 1975, um, after working with the Everly Brothers and others, it it sounds like he had it with L.A., and he he moves to Spain uh, working in a bar, but he comes up with his first truly great song, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner.
1: I think it definitely reinvigorated his, his love of songwriting at a low point. He had written some great material before leaving, but nothing came of it. After the Everleys, you know, they would keep throwing him a bone. You know, we have a gig coming up. Are you available? And, but it was very, very few and far between. He had done uh, very expensive demos to be shopped, but nothing came of that. But he had a wealth of material. He and his wife, Crystal, at the time, they went to Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Spain. I'm sorry, Spain, the Irish bar. And he wrote Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner with the bar owner, who was a real mercenary. I think that when Warren would have a hiatus in between projects, when there was a gap, is when he would write the best material. That particular incident's crucial because he had time on his hands to refine stuff. But it also taught him that he could collaborate with the right person. You know, there was a non-competitive thing with the mercenary he had met there, where this isn't a songwriter. He didn't have
2: to worry about songwriting credits, per se.
1: Exactly. He was just listening to these great stories and having fun and this and that. When he had a camaraderie with a songwriter and there was nothing competitive going on, you would see a lot of great material come out of him. And I think that that taught him the lesson that he could collaborate with the right person. He's very picky.
2: So who was Roland? Tell us a little bit about that song.
1: Well, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner was written with uh, David Lindell, who was uh, an actual mercenary, who had retired to Spain and opened a bar. Warren and his wife at the time, Crystal, they were doing an expatriate thing. There was nothing tying them to Los Angeles. He didn't have a contract yet. Even though Jackson Brown was working on it for him, nothing had come of it yet. Mm -hmm. So he was pretty much doing, you know, past the hat. He was singing for tourists and he could play anything. And the banter was good and there was no stress. But I think he knew that he was gonna be beckoned back to LA at some point, I think that. But he started writing, uh, you know, that song with the owner of the bar based on the stories that Lindell had about the real mercenaries he used to know and how the underhanded dealings would lead to this foreign intrigue and everything. Warren already was writing songs in the third person about monsters and and lunatics and all these things, but it was all very personal, I think, veiled. He was able to merge all of these great war stories With the concept of writing like a ghost story or a murder ballad. And what you have in the background is this big compositional sweep to it. You know, I have to say this. That's the type of song where I think to myself Warren might have been a happier man had he not been a rock and roller but written stuff for Broadway instead. It's so cinematic. Because there's a
2: cinematic quality to
1: it. See that being part of a stage production.
2: Yeah. As soon as you hear the song, you know, all the characters are fleshed out immediately in your head. There's
1: characters and there's you know, new instruments get introduced throughout the sweep of the song, and it has that amazing crescendo at the end with the march, with the drums. This is not a normal rock song. This is a song <laughs> that's meant for live. It's meant for live performance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think Warren probably would have uh, gotten into stage work had he lived longer. But I can get to that at the end of this.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah, because he, yeah, he passes away at uh, fifty seven uh,
1: or fifty. He had a lot going on. He's so, fifty six, and yeah. there was a lot that he had going on. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. that yeah. Uh, did not that get did not come together. to pass. Cool right. projects, right. right? Yeah.
2: So he moves back home. Uh, is in L.A. He's living with uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. Uh, and then the big break comes. Uh, yeah, he,
1: he got a he got a postcard from Jackson Brown saying, you know, it was a, it was a letter of encouragement. You know, that if you come back, I know it's going to happen for you. Warren interpreted that as though a record deal had been presented. So he went back thinking it was...
2: Done. That, it was it was signed and sealed and delivered. Right?
1: It wasn't, but Jackson Brown was a great friend and pretty much made it his priority to, to make good on that promise. And he got him he got him in advance within the first few weeks.
2: Yeah, and so in 1976, the album Warren Zevon uh, is released. And and uh, I mean I mean everybody in L.A. You know that whole Laurel Canyon scene. You know uh, we're talking Jackson Brown, the Eagles, Beach Boys, and of course Linda Brown uh, Linda Ronstadt are are on this uh, this album,
1: right? They all knew him, and most of them were label mates. Jackson Brown uh, was very heavily affiliated with Electra Asylum; that was his label. But he also was—I uh, I would think, to, to an extent—it was a professional relationship. But he was in good with David Geffen, the founder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jackson's music wasn't always wasn't just, you know, brilliant and sold well. He had an eye for talent, and he had made recommendations of people that Geffen could sign, and he trusted him. The names that you had just given, as far as Linda Ronstadt, the Eagles, they all performed Warren's music. They all regarded him as the finest songwriter in that clique. So he was kind of sort of like the last one to have his own major solo album, but everyone in that group had been performing his stuff and friends were friends with him for years. So it was a huge, you know, push of encouragement that they all came out to help out at the studio when he finally got his major, major debut with the same label. So it was almost like a thank you to an extent. But at the same time, a lot of people went down because Jackson Brown was in charge.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: (laughs) everybody. That can't be understated. Some, you know, some people, the executives and everything, who's Warren Zevon? All the musicians knew who he was. Well, there were people who didn't know who Warren was. All they had to hear was, oh, Jackson's the producer. I'll be there. And he was able to get big numbers, too. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So the album does okay. Uh, It breaks the top 200, but it doesn't set the world on fire uh, at the time. I I think it's not until the next year when Linda Ronstadt records Poor, Poor, Pitiful
1: Me. She uh, recorded four of Warren's songs on the same album, and Wadi Wachtel is the lead guitarist. It was a very, very symbiotic type of yeah, relationship with these artists. Uh, Yes, yeah,
2: yeah. That, it is that L.A. music scene, uh, you know, like the, you know the section. Uh, I think uh, you know people like Russ Kunkel and uh, oh, they're on everything. Yeah, they're that whole group, um, uh, Lee Galar, and, and they're all you know playing around uh, the same group, and Warren's a part of that camp.
1: He's so not only no, part a part of that camp, rise. but that also had lasting effects. This is funny. The album of Linda Ronstadt that we're talking about that has all those songs where Waddy is also the guitarist, the producer of it is Peter Asher. Right,
2: right.
1: Now, uh, Peter Asher and was Warren... the
2: Beatles, right,
1: right. Yeah, he had done yeah, the, the Beatles Records, and he had his own yeah. folk do... Yeah, mm-hmm, he had... Yeah. had, had Lennon McCartney wrote, I think, a few songs for them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was producing at that point and produced some of Linda Ronstadt's biggest hits. Didn't do anything with Warren... Years later, he and Warren are still friends, and Peter Escher would pop up on one of Warren's albums. So everybody affiliated at some point would end up on a Warren Zevon album.
2: Yeah, it was kind of like the club, and you were in it, and he definitely was, was in it. All right. And then in 76, he makes uh, the album that would really, uh, well, I'm sorry, in 78, in 78. he The one in 76 was
1: the debut, and it was a critical darling, but it didn't really sell. Excitable Boy was the follow up, and they had saved a lot of commercial material for that one, like you were saying.
2: So they did. They saved uh, some of the, Warren saved some of the songs for the next album then at the
1: time. Well, when he went into the studio for the first one, for Warren Zevon, he had tons of material ready because he had had years to prepare. When he presented it to Jackson Brown, and they were cherry-picking what should be on the album, Jackson had already recorded in the studio a version of Werewolves of London. Multiple versions already existed, and they were all doing it on tour, but it had never been released. Mm -hmm. There were a few songs that were like that, and Excitable Boy was another one. The actual song, Excitable Boy, they had done versions, they shelved them. The first album, Jackson said, "This is to establish you as the songwriter we know you are." Second one, let's have fun. So the second one had all the crazy characters. It had the werewolf, the serial killer, the ghost. All of those would appear on the follow-up, but most of them had been written already.
2: Yeah, because I think even Roland the headless Thompson Gunner appears on uh, on the second album. Yep. Yeah. So on, on, but, on but he the had been preparing
1: whole. them so long. And the thing that's funny is Werewolves of London. He had you know they wrote that in about. 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) They had recorded demos of it in 1975. They recorded a version of it in 1976. Everyone was performing it. It wasn't until 1978 that they laid down a real version for release. But he had been sitting on that for a long time.
2: All right, all right. So now I think the public is ready for Warren Zebon, wouldn't you say?
1: I would think that they had been primed for it. And the thing that's funny is, you know, to make that type of push, Jackson was told, you know, we'll sign your friend, but you have to produce. He also asked Warren to be his opening act on his tour and then assisted with the next tour. So there was a big PR push and you have all these crazy characters and all these great write-ups, all these critical reviews talking about Warren's songwriting, but you're also starting to see write-ups in the paper about his behavior and about how he's performing on stage. And his live performances during his first two tours were disastrous. So there's a lot of anticipation for Excitable Boy, but at the same time, that persona thing was kind of already installed, and it was only the second album.
2: So it was taking over his life, uh, along with the drugs and drink.
1: Unfortunately, it was very early on in his career that that was at its worst. And it was around Excitable Boy that it started to maybe take hold. It's why Jackson co-produced, instead of completely produced, Excitable Boy, and then only popped up on a few tracks on the third album. They all stayed friends, but a lot of people didn't want to sever relationships by working with Warren all the time.
2: They could see that uh, professionally this maybe wasn't working. uh, It was unraveling a bit at
1: that point. Right. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Earlier.
2: Yeah. And that's too bad because uh, by 78, I mean, it all comes together and he is a bona fide rock star equal to his friends.
1: Uh, that was what they had wanted for him and that was the album that did it
2: they got him there and and he just couldn't comply uh and and i think it's not just the alcoholism or the the rock star treatment or what have you i mean he 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 brought with him his own set of demons right
1: i think uh i'll be honest i mean I, i i've gotten more questions about this than i expected which is interesting but I have to remember that when I was working on this book, I discovered for myself that Warren's music and his personal life really are inseparable because they were so autobiographical. Mm. My own personal feelings, the book is not necessarily about this, but it's my opinion. I think that Warren probably had a hereditary trait for alcoholism or for substance abuse. Mm. I think, I'll be honest, he, he said later the first time he had ever had alcohol was when he was a minor in Stravinsky's house, which would lead to him stealing his stepfather's booze all the time. And... Like we had said already, at the age of 16, 17, he was already being introduced to rock stars who were a few years older and loved taking him under their wing. So it's not that there was one necessarily bad influence in the bunch. It's that he got thrown into that at a very, very formidable age. He was a rock star before he could vote. So, yeah. And you have these cool guys driving you around in their convertibles. Their songs are on the radio, and then yours comes up next. They said, Do you want to go to the troubadour with us? And there's LSD and there's pot, and there's, you know, he's under 20 years old. I think that those examples were set for him before his career even started.
2: So he just naturally falls into it. Uh, without, Absolutely it, boring, it, it, it's yeah. almost like the uh, you know the proverbial uh, uh, college basketball star that gets the two hundred million dollar contract uh, with the NBA that's team it. and doesn't know what to do with it, burns through it all, uh, and uh, ends up uh, burning out before reaching exactly his full potential.
1: It's the same age. Yeah, Warren didn't finish high school or go to college, and I think that that was something that always bothered him. I think that that was an underlying thing that that was there but he used his his ambition and the opportunity to get out of the house at a very young age. But yeah, think about the age that he was. You just nailed it. That's the same age as those players when they're at their most, I guess, maybe emotionally vulnerable or uh, there's a certain amount of immaturity over what decisions need to be made at that point. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah, Warren was a prodigy, but at the same time, I don't think he expected to have the opportunities he did at the age he did Yeah, And you know, his dad bought him a you know his dad bought him a stingray you're driving around in hollywood at that age why would you want to go back to school you know Right, right
2: no uh and you know you're you are living the life and maybe uh while you had a lot of great musical role models you you maybe didn't have a lot of great life role models to help you manage uh these these situations
1: in all fairness it's not to point fingers these were all really great guys who cared about him yeah. but remember warren was the same age as the guys that were buying the albums by the artists he was friends with yeah very impressionable yeah. doesn't matter who you are at 18 years old you're going to be impressionable yeah. and i think that that probably started it and i think the idea that warren's literary heroes his literary heroes were champions of that he loved you know as he got a little bit older hunter thompson we were talking about hunter thompson Thompson was pretty much a proponent for that type of living, for good or for ill, and he was a fabulous writer. And
2: yeah, Chinese, Rolling Stone writer. Uh, uh, it was you champion. Know, you know, know fearless Las it Vegas, Hell's Angel, and yeah, uh, and so it was all there. You know, uh, since you brought up Hunter S. Thompson, you know, uh, yeah. god, Godfather of, uh, of Gonzo journalism, you know, which is the. You're living the what you're writing about at the time. Uh, You are engaging. Warren
1: was kind of a Gonzo songwriter. I think that that was. I've never necessarily used that term, but what you just said, I think that's why he was drawn to even meeting Hunter. I think he recognized that in his writing too. I think you're right.
2: Yeah. Oh, maybe this is how you do it. You actually. Uh, you know, uh, are these characters that you write about, you go out and live that life and then you have the experience and the knowledge and wherewithal to authentically write about it.
1: I would agree with that a hundred percent. And I think um, it's funny that you brought that up, especially when it comes to Thompson, because you have to remember that Warren was friends with all these writers who who shared that ideal. and, and, And he was fascinated with the writer's creative process, even more so than a rock musician's. Yeah, but remember, in fact he
2: he had a nickname, uh F Scott Fitz Fitzevon.
1: There Fitz-Z-Z-on. you go. <laughs> right, right. Even he and Hunter Thompson had the same heroes. He was a fan of Hunters and they became friends, but both of them when they were kids wanted to write their own version of The Great Gatsby. Yeah. So they, you know, Fitzgerald was a template and Hemingway was a template and most rock stars don't use those yeah. as templates. His buddy that buddies, whole
2: lost generation. Uh, yeah, uh, but
1: uh, I mean yeah, yeah. Warren's this rock, you know, he's this young rock star. Anything he wants is at his disposal because he's a rock star. But when he goes home, his literary influences kind of sort of champion the same behavior in a different way. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, yeah pro- William, I, w- I would probably add there. William S. Burroughs in there as well.
1: Absolutely. And that, <laughs> and that name's been thrown out, too. Absolutely. It's, those were all on his bookshelf. Yeah.
2: For years. Yeah. 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 And another great point to explore is uh, Zivon's uh, collaborations musically with book authors like Hunter S. Thompson and William Gibson uh, famously wrote uh, Neuromancer.
1: He was inspired by Gibson. But, yeah, Neuromancer was a huge, huge, huge influence on one of his later albums, Transverse City. But it's funny, you know, you and I were talking, even before this started, about... uh,
0: Our our green room discussion, yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I I love that you brought up My Rides here, his second-to-last album, where almost every song, his co-writer is not necessarily a musician, but it's a famous writer. He he handpicked that. That is a trend that goes way, way, way back. He first collaborated with Thomas McGuane, another famous novelist, back in 1981, I want to say, 8081. 81. That was the first time he collaborated with a novelist. Again, I don't know this, but I would think he was maybe a tad more open to that type of collaboration because it was a writer and not a competitive musician. Mm-hmm. He got more and more comfortable. But that was the first time he wrote something with another actual author. And I think that that experience was positive enough where he would do that periodically leading up to his second-to-last album where it's a concept album and it's him writing with all his favorite writers. Yeah, yeah. He all right, slowly so, building towards that. So by
2: 1982, the album The Envoy, which was yeah. critically panned and unfortunately, charted... Uh, yeah. Z- Z- is a mess. I'd say, you know, music uh, was changing greatly by 1982. Um, but it seems like he just put it all on his own shoulders
1: he did uh he had had to be, to be blunt about it he had had a lot of friends who were also his professional cohorts that that they they were the same people and after he had had uh, an intervention and had been in rehab a couple of times he tried, i believe warren really did try and make that push but people forget that this is a disease it's not a choice and that was yeah. something i learned very heavily yes. writing this role all, mm-hmm. all that time mm-hmm. uh by that point he had gotten a little over ambitious with that album and was not paying too much attention to what was going on at his label. You know, the Eagles had disbanded and a bunch of uh, his musical guys were on their own tours and their own albums. Waddy was on tour with someone else. Jackson Brown had had two or three albums come out during that whole time period. Warren was on his own with that one. So he got accused of self indulgence, but the truth of the matter is that it's actually a beautiful album that pretty much got him cut from the label because it didn't sell.
2: Uh, So you mentioned the intervention. Um, I yeah. mean, he, by this time, he has to uh, talk about
1: it. I know it, yeah, it's has, actually pretty crucial.
2: Yeah, because, I mean, his life is is just a huge mess at, at this point. I mean, his his drug taking uh, alcoholism is uh, is legendary. He's not Keith Richards. He can't uh, maintain. He really has uh, well, but then again, who is Keith Richards? Um <laughs> <Which> uh, <laughs> is something that it sounds like he would say. Yeah. And so. Uh, uh, and so an intervention occurs. Uh, let's
1: talk a little bit about it. He had had an intervention, which was one of the first major ones with a celebrity in uh, the summer of 78. And his wife at the time, uh, Crystal, had had to do a lot of research to find an experimental hospital that offered something new. Nothing else worked. He eventually did go into AA, but he had attempted it first years before and it didn't take. Nothing did. And it wasn't so much that his friends and family were concerned that he was throwing his career away. It's that they thought they were going to find him dead. Right, right, right. At that point. And remember, he was his heroes included Jim Morrison and his friends included Jim Belushi. So it's actually very believable that that could have happened to him.
2: Oh, of course. Of course. You know? Yeah, as it did and, to them. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. He had had it. They, they had staged an intervention and there were some big names in the room and his family and friends. But it really symbolized maybe the first push towards sobriety as opposed to being the sobriety. It would take a few more years for that to hold. He was in and out of rehab a number of times. And then like with anyone who I spoke to who wanted to remain anonymous, the truth of the matter is that he got sober when he was ready to do it by himself.
2: Well, that's I think what happens to most people. Uh, yeah, it, it is a choice that that you have to make. Nobody can do it for you. Uh, you five have years to get later, it was people to really try. Yeah, yeah, and because and, it was between uh, the envoy and and the next album, it's five years. Um it's a full and, five years. Yeah, we'll talk about the next album in a second, but I do I, I do want to talk about the the song on uh, the album called the envoy. It's right re- it's really interesting. Tell us the story about that.
1: The song itself yes he warren every once in a while would drop these sly little comments about how he was this monster james bond fan (laughs) always and you know ian fleming was on his shelf and he was a huge connery fan and he would always he would make little veil 007 references in interviews and things like that and he did it up until his death when he was dying he said i just want to live long enough to see the next bond movie (laughs) so that always carried over as a theme the cover of the previous album, Bad Luck Streak and Dancing Streak, the, the, the actual album cover in um, Dancing School, excuse me, on the cover, it's actually an homage to like a 007 type of uh, matinee poster with Connery surrounded by women. They went for that style. The Envoy, he took it a slightly larger step further because the song and the album itself is kind of this foreign intrigue. Um, Again, the Graham Greene type of territory where there's adventure and travel. And he used as his template the actual uh, U.S. envoy, I think it was Habib. Yeah, Philip He Yeah, the song is about him, but he doesn't use the name. And Warren said in an interview, he's like, I'm so fascinated with this individual that has no job description, but when there's an emergency, the president calls him. (laughs) He's the guy. He he wrote a song, yeah, he's a go-to for whatever we need done. And Warren had this, uh, I think, admiration for this stoic type of behavior, this professionalism that you know a soldier or a secret agent would have. It sounds funny, but he was very cinematic in his creative process. And I think he wrote that song about the actual, you know, the actual envoy at the time, who was in all the headlines. But it was also that he was kind of drilling at home that he was trying to walk that line himself. It sounds vague, but in interviews, he actually hinted at that, that there was a, like a stoicism and a professionalism to just being able to problem solve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even his most off the wall subject matter in his songs, you get deep enough, they're all autobiographical.
2: Yeah. So he's writing what he knows. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Always. And then, you know, if he didn't know it, he'd have to live it to know it and write it.
2: But yeah. Yeah, 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 which causes its own set of problems that we've uh, we've been discussing here. So, um, I, I have to talk about uh, Warren Zevon's relationship with David Letterman. Um, Absolutely, he, he was a, a frequent guest, uh, most famously with his last appearance in two thousand two, which we'll get to uh, later. But where where he famously says, uh, "Enjoy every sandwich." But he, that was it. That was the, that was the appearance. He, he was there a ton of times, and he also ended up being uh, taking a, Paul's spot when Paul was out, right?
1: Well, it's interesting. Dave, David Letterman was in his very, very first season on NBC, all right, not knowing that he would be in, you know, end up on the air for, what, 25, 30 years.
2: No. and yeah. it, it now, was he, very... just, he had been fired the year before from the morning show. Exactly. Uh, doing doing yeah. basically the same act, and, uh, you know, Took it to this after Johnny period, this 1230 at night, which was at the time was a dead zone uh, and turns this into a giant success that we all know and love now. But he populated uh, it
1: with these really cool iconoclastic type of guests to separate it from The Tonight Show. And Warren Zevon was his personal choice as a musical guest. He, you know, Dave's sense of humor. He was already an actual fan. He'd listen to Warren at home. Let's get him on the show. And Warren's first appearance was on you know, Dave's show in the first season. Exactly twenty years later, Warren's final appearance on television ever is on Dave's second show, twentieth yeah. anniversary of their friendship. Yeah. But they got along very, very well on that first appearance, and if you you know you can watch it, it's on. You can find those clips online. Oh, he, in he's very- a great
2: guest. I mean, he inhabits uh, himself, and uh, oh, yeah, the banter between them
1: yeah. is so natural. Yeah, yeah. you know. I think that you can tell when you see them that there's a mutual respect and a shared sense of humor that comes across anytime they were together. Even when Warren didn't have a contract or his album would be selling poorly, Dave was the consistent mainstream television venue that would always ask him to come on. So as a Warren's Yvonne fan, we're very lucky because we have clips of him performing songs that wouldn't exist anywhere else. Thanks to Dave. And when Warren was dying, uh, Letterman cleared the entire uh, episode for him. He had only done that for one other guest, the vice president. And Warren was on for the whole show. But yeah, you can, and yeah. Oh, and not to skip over it, it was <laughs> Letterman's idea uh, to get Warren to fill in for Paul Schaefer back in the mid-90s when Schaefer was on vacation filming the Blues Brothers sequel. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and Warren hadn't been a band leader since the Everly's, <laughs> And he picked it up like it was nothing. He did it again. Oh. He could read all the charts, write everything from, you know, in his head. Yeah. But uh, Paul Schaefer commented on that later. It was it was amazing watching him do that.
2: I bet, I bet. All right, so by eighty seven he's cleaned up and I think the second half of his life uh begins. That's really it. Uh yeah. and he's it's back. Second a, life. Yeah, 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 second life with another great album, Sentimental Hygiene. Uh and uh, again, a lot of famous buddies helping out, anchored this time by the guys from REM, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, and Bill Berry.
1: It's such a strong album because of that lineup, man. Uh, Yeah, Warren Warren hadn't had an album in five years. And I don't want to give a super long-winded answer, but I'll fill in the gap because so much important stuff happened. And this really wasn't documented too much. When the Envoy tanked, Warren didn't even have a home, to be honest. He had been living with his girlfriend at the time the house was in her name. So with no contract and divorced and losing a girlfriend. Warren moved to the East Coast and was living with his girlfriend at the time, Anita Gevinson. And she's awesome, but she was with Warren during his his, his probably his worst stage. Mm-hmm. He found out while living in Philadelphia that he had been dropped by Electra Asylum in the you know, the news briefs column of Rolling Stone and went off the <laughs> yeah. deep end. And there was really no, there was, there was nothing on the horizon at the time. And the thing that's amazing is that nobody really knew this, but he was still writing songs while living at that apartment in bad shape. And he was going to be dropped by his management. And this is interesting. He didn't know any of this was going on. This is all, you know, in L.A. and, and everything, because he's not answering his calls, he's not answering letters. And a gentleman named Andy Slater, who I probably, if there was any person in this book I related to the most, probably Andy. Andy was in his 20s and worked for the management team for Irving Azov's Management Frontline. And when he heard that they were going to cut Warren, he said, why would we cut the most talented artist that we have? And they pretty much looked at Andy and said, all right, you want him, he's yours. And his first client as manager was cleaning up Warren and getting him a new contract. Andy was young and was friends with the guys from REM and pretty much convinced Warren to do some awesome demos with this younger band. And those are the demos that got him his comeback.
2: Yeah, and it worked great. Great uh, stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah great yeah, stuff. Yeah, so yeah. energetic, Sounds yeah. so much better yeah. immediately. Yeah.
2: Oh, and they also had a side project called Hindu Love
1: Gods. <laughs> Which wasn't supposed to be a project. <laughs> yeah. In order to warm up for those sessions, the guys from REM they and, and Warren, they all knew blues tracks. And the number one song at the time was Prince's uh, "Raspberry Boy <laughs> yeah. which is a great cover extra, version. Yeah. It's a great version. Yeah, you know, Warren is Warren is not drinking or doing drugs at the time. The guys from REM they have beer while they're there, and they all go crazy. And he's with you know these just past college age, and they had extra studio time, so they they just covered all these awesome blues tracks. The tapes were rolling, but was never meant to do anything. It wasn't until a few years later. When Warren, unfortunately, needed another record contract, that they were able to use those original tapes with R.E.M. as, a, as like a, a chip, a bargaining chip. But it's still a great album.
2: And it worked. Uh, and, yeah, it sounds and, great. Uh, yeah, and I think by 87, you know, I mean, let's face it, R.E.M. is like huge uh, at that they, time.
1: They exploded right after recording with him. Yeah,
2: it's a perfect group to, uh, to be working with uh, right then. So, uh, you know, kudos to uh, Peter Bob Andy. and uh, my. <laughs> Andy Wilson, did a great job and and Andy, that, Andy uh, that And Andy yeah. putting that together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do yeah. so you yeah.
1: have REM as the backup band for this album? So, really quick, the name of Warren's you know, unofficial comeback album was Sentimental Hygiene. Yeah. When he was in Philadelphia and things were going very, very poorly, he finally called his cousin in New York, his older cousin, Sanford, whose wife worked for drug rehabilitation, he took the train up to New York. They sat down with him. He hadn't seen his family in years. And they got him into a, a very strict program uh, in Minnesota, I believe. I double-checked. But it was very difficult. And Warren did not have another drink for 17 years. When he, was, when he was with Andy Slater, he got clean, sober, moved back to L.A. They shopped the demos, and he had an album with him that first year. That's, that's awesome. So, And it also helped that his old buddy Martin Scorsese used Werewolves of London in The Color of Money in 86, <laughs> and that helped them yeah. put pen to paper yeah. to sign him. He oh, got cool. back on the charts with his biggest hit. Ten years yeah.
2: earlier, yeah, a, a second life,
1: but eight uh, years earlier, uh,
2: yeah, 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 which we know uh, works really well uh, in the in the uh, the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, ha- people who don't know Warren Zevon. Yeah,
1: yeah. The people who don't know Warren Zevon know Tom Cruise dancing around with a pool cue to the song. <laughs> right. Even if you don't know how to play pool, there's every idiot at some point has had a bet going in a pool hall, and that's what's playing on the jukebox when you know they, when they play.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. That'll pump you up for sure.
1: Yeah. All right. So,
2: um, how do you think the public? misses most of warren zevon's career but all of his contemporaries and even his heroes get him was he was he just too smart for the general rock and roll public
1: a few people have actually used that exact expression to describe him he was too smart for his own good he was too smart for radio i think one of the things that's interesting is you know warren would have these hiatuses without without a record contract or without a new album but when he was signed it is very unfortunate but He was on these smaller labels where he'd write these great albums, but they wouldn't have any of the same distribution that he had had with Electro Asylum or with Virgin when he did Sentimental Hygiene. So he was putting out stuff, and it wasn't getting on the radio, and not enough people were seeing it in the stores. And if he wasn't on tour or on television, it would be very easy to forget about him, unfortunately. But he had a loyal fan base that would always come out to see him or look for his stuff. And like you said, why did he get these great musicians? Because he's, they still revered the songwriting. He'd still be recording in L.A. He'd still be able to make those calls. If the album wasn't going to get heard or it wasn't selling, wasn't always his fault. But he took it just as seriously, and the people who, who believed in him as a songwriter, they never went away. He was still able to get great names on those albums, even though you know, anyone who wasn't already a fan was going to have a tough time you know, seeing it come out.
2: Yeah and if you if you go through those credits I mean you're you're talking like 20 30 sometimes 40 people are on these albums just doing little things uh, maybe just a little background uh vocal or, sure. or or even or even wood blocks or something like that it's uh it's crazy uh, so just everybody wanted to come uh, and and hang around and and get a first listen to uh, what Warren was going to present this time
1: yeah, you know, that's a great way of putting it. And the thing is, is that, you know, his intervention and his problems with alcohol and drugs had been heavily publicized at the time. People in this generation, especially if they don't know him, will forget that there was a time where in the Society pages or, or in the headlines, you would see if, if if something was going on with him that was not part of his musical career, you know? So when he came out with another album after five years, there was a lot of curiosity what he was going to be singing about. Then you have a song like Detox Mansion on that, where this album becomes not only a comeback, but it hits in 1987 and is this biting commentary on the celebrity tell-all. Yeah. You know? He's one of the first celebrities to go into rehab, and then when he... And be very and public
2: Hoper, about it. And, and I
1: very think, public, I think yeah. he
2: was, unlike his contemporaries, he was always public about uh, his troubles and travails.
1: He would know how to use it. He would know how to use it. I think luck really did play a part in it, and I have to say this. He would talk about getting clean and sober before it really occurred, and he'd always lapse. Then when he truly got sober for, for real, it was very personal to him, and he would never talk about it in an interview again. It's almost like he maybe he thought he jinxed himself by talking about it before it occurred, and that's why he fell off, you know? But... You have an album like Sentimental Hygiene where he starts to poke fun at the fact that by the time he is clean and sober, you have had a lot of celebrities in and out of rehab. They're all listed in the song. <laughs> he names, he names, you know, Liza and Liz and all the big names that had been in and out of clinics during the 80s, not to poke fun at it. I think it kind of reminded people, hey, I was the first one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> remember me? I'm the, I'm, the first, I'm the one who made this the trend. Yeah. Although you know, he he always liked to remind people that he went into he went to an intervention because Billy Martin had done it first.
2: So he could. could,
1: (laughs) could It's good enough for Billy Martin. That was the line. Right, right,
2: right. right.
1: Remember when he was diagnosed with mesothelioma? He said, "Well, it's the same one Steve McQueen had." (laughs) Always name dropping his favorites. (laughs) You know.
2: All right. So we 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 get to uh, the second half of his career. He's sober and he's making great records. But can't afford to tour with the needed instrumentation to really sell these songs live.
1: That went it's out just the window. Tragic. He did two albums for Virgin Records. Andy Slater was was able to get him signed as one of the the. Actually, you know, this is so crucial. I hope the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame listens to this stuff because there's so many firsts with Warren that people mm. forget. Mm. He was the first American artist signed to Virgin when they were making their big push in the '80s for you know the music, the big music division. Right. Right. And there was a huge PR push. in the I think, I think when, when
2: when Richard Branson owned the company.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah this yeah. is 87. This is when it was still a relatively new name if you were a record shopper. You hadn't seen that label before, but there's a lot of money behind it. Yeah. So Warren's the first U.S. artist that signed, and they don't really know how to market him 100%. Having R.E.M. is huge. The idea that there was a fan base almost 10 years ago, they want to play to that a little bit, but they also have to make him hit. So there's a lot of rock tracks on that, and a couple of music videos, which you wouldn't expect coming from Warren Zevon. He had done some promos before. Now you have uh, an extended dub cut of one of his songs that's made into a dance remix, and he's dancing with George Clinton, and all kinds of weird things that you didn't expect to see from Warren Zevon in the 80s. His tour was very expensive and extravagant, and when they did the next album, they scaled back tremendously. But I still think that sentimental hygiene was great because it would have been great even without the thirty cameos. It was just a solid list of songs.
2: So he he then makes a concept album, Transverse City, uh, which is inspired by the great book, which which nowadays is is considered like a prophetic book of the world we live in, uh, this information society. Uh, you know, this computer-driven, data-driven surveillance uh, economy that we live in called Neuromancer by William Gibson, right?
1: Not only that, you nailed it. You have to realize Warren was always reading and had numerous books with him on tour. He loved this cyberpunk genre at the time and Mm -hmm. and was heavily into Gibson's work. And that had a huge effect on him. And you remember, he did the two albums for Virgins. So we have Sentimental Hygiene, which is loaded with his commentary about being sober and, 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 and restarting. And then what I said is with Transverse City, he's inspired by Gibson, like you had said, by Neuromancer, this futuristic, uh, dystopian image of, of what the future is going to be. As soon as he lets out this deep breath, I'm sober, I'm clean, <laughs> and I'm healthy, he looks around and he does not like what he sees. And it's, a, it's almost like a culture shock type of album, where he had no other choice than to describe what he's looking at as a dystopia. And especially the first three tracks on it, they're laden with dark paranoia imagery, a lot of social commentary about consumerism, very, very, very 80s. You know, if you have all the happy 80s stuff in the first Virgin release, the second one is the darker half of it. And I think what you said about it being prophetic, the book that, it, that he was inspired by, that's a huge thing. Because the album itself was also prophetic. Warren's budget got slashed, and he had no choice but to edit a good bulk of that on a computer. He was also one of the first artists to have to edit his audio on a computer in 1989. So he didn't get credit for that either. But out of necessity, and also thanks to uh, his, uh, his buddy road manager at the time and engineer, Duncan Ulrich, who was a tech wizard, Warren started learning home production on that album complete autonomy but he loved the futuristic elements of editing on the computer and i think that spilled over into the album too Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well plus when he visited neil young and saw neil young's home studio with all of his cool guitar pedals and all his toys warren started collecting that stuff too
2: oh yeah neil was always uh tinkering around with uh yeah he was
1: really really impressed with neil's collection yeah yeah yeah
2: all right. So he goes through the 90s. Uh, like we said, um, you know, a lot of his touring is, is uh, or the instrumentation along with the touring is scaled back. It's a lot of it's just worn in a piano.
1: Yeah. It, he had no choice. I think one of the things that's fascinating if if, if if you're a fan or if you read the book and all of a sudden you want to see physically the difference between the two. Warren had to continue to sing the songs that his fans would expect from a set list. You know, he'd mix it up and he had a big songbook, but there'd have to be favorites in there, especially stuff that he knew were great for live performance. Depending upon how his album was doing at the time or which label he signed with and what the budget's going to be, you had bands that would back him, you'd have cameo appearances, and then you would have a lot of tours in the 90s where it's Warren, his guitar, a piano, and pedals. And in order to do that, he had to transpose the keys on a lot of his songs. He'd have to learn to rearrange them for different instruments. What are you going to do when this was meant for harmonies and there's only me? He was forced to get very, very, very creative, and only a real composer would be able to do that with an with an entire songbook. He had to do that. If you were to go online and you look up him performing, uh, play it all night long in 1982, and then you watch, you know, somebody's camera of filming him in. 2002 different instrument different voicing different key he he had to keep evolving because uh, he was really really a modern troubadour by the end mm. or as he said you know as he told people I'm I'm heavy metal folk <laughs> you know i love that description too
2: that's good, that's good. The only uh, one he hated
1: was Adult Contemporary. That was the only one he even liked.
2: like. The, the only musical star? Oh, oh, him being called Adult Contemporary? Yeah.
1: yeah, I can use real language on this show, right? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> You're know, you good. You know what he said to the audience. It's in the book when he made the Adult Contemporary charts. He goes, let me tell you what that is. Easy fucking listening. <laughs> you know, in his deep baritone, you hear that. He doesn't sound very happy.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, in 2000 he he makes another great album, Life Will Kill Ya, uh, Amazing. and since we we said Prophetic this is rather prophetic. And by now, it is,
1: yeah, the last three albums are very much about mortality. They yeah, are. yeah. But it's it wasn't intentional. Like he
2: knew it, because he's feeling good as things are beginning to go great. He's getting recognition now. I think the, the public is starting to understand him. You know, he's got uh, uh, almost 30 years of, uh, of the business behind him. Everything seems like it's all going to come up roses from now on.
1: Well, he was definitely working his way towards a happy existence, I would say. You know, as far as his personal relationships, I don't have to get into that too much. You know, he had been in and out of those. But having gotten sober, he had made amends with and reconnected with almost everybody from before. His kids and his ex and his his parents, all of that. He took a lot of time in order to do that. And I think, to be honest, I mean, financially, he had these bad times. But not being on the road all the time and not having the crunching deadlines during that period, I think he took a lot of time for himself to do those things first and foremost. He was an AA, and that played a tremendous part in his daily regimen during all of these albums. When Transverse City did not do well, he lost uh, another label. And in the 90s, remember we talked about Hindu Love Gods, that was used as a bargaining chip to get him signed to the giant label. Great albums on that, but no, very yeah, little. which was
2: he, Irving Azoff's label at
1: the time. Yeah, yeah, and that was his manager, so mm-hmm. of course he was going to be signed there. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing you can do if the albums aren't selling, and I don't think it was anyone's necess- necessarily their, their fault. So after three albums, Lawrence cut again. Yeah. So he's facing 90- 1996, going you know going into 1996, he's not signed to anyone, and he does not tour as nearly as much. And the word retired erroneously pops up in in the news if his name is mentioned. What people don't realize is that he had built his home studio by that point and had been recording songs for five years and just didn't sell them to anyone yeah, yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he bumps into Jackson Brown, who and they hadn't talked in a while. And I had put this in the book. Jackson talked about it later. It was a different type of Warren that he encountered. You know. He, he, I'm paraphrasing, but he had said, you know, I wanted to help Warren in the 70s because I knew how much talent he had and, and what he had been through. When he saw him again years later and Warren wasn't signed, it was a very different scenario. It's like, he is clean and sober. He is really trying, and the songs are amazing. What What can I do for him this time? And he presented them to a great guy named Danny Goldberg.
2: Oh, uh, Danny Goldberg uh, comes up awesome. over and over again. In the, in I am the, a uh, very,
1: very yeah. big fan of him personally. Yeah. His interviews yeah. were amazing. And uh, he's a really great guy, and he has worked with, like, the who's who of, of rock and roll. He started, you know, he, in his 20s, he worked for Zeppelin, and he's yeah. Nirvana's manager. Finally, you know, he starts Artemis Records. Jackson Brown gives him the demos, and Danny Goldberg cannot wait to sign Warren to get his new album. And it's more... It's more Folk, it's more folk rock. But any time, you had said this, Christian, any time there was a hiatus in between, the material would be really strong. Warren had five years to write great material, so when he does his first album for Danny, Life Will Kill You, every song is great. They're polished by the time he finally lays them down. And he had recorded the vocals at his kitchen table, so it didn't take too much work.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in 2002, he receives a death sentence of uh, mesothelioma, which is lung cancer, uh, usually, usually caused by asbestos, yep. uh, Way which listen. is weird. And, you know, luckily, very quickly, he makes two last albums, uh, My Ride's Here, and this is the one with all the the songs are written in collaboration with non-musical writers.
1: Yeah. And, well, the reason that that came about, uh, I think, is because during the 90s, during this big hiatus Warren had, I don't know if it was intentional or not, I feel it probably was, he had distanced himself from a lot of what he might perceive to be bad influences. The rock and roll community, at that point a lot of people had cleaned up from drinking and drugs anyway. But he didn't necessarily run in those circles all the time. You find this interesting thing where he had become friends with the crime writer Carl Hyacin. Hyacin had used Warren's, uh, one of his characters in a book is a Warren Zevon fan. So Warren goes to book soup, waits online with everyone else when Carl Hiaasen is there, and thanks him in person. Thank you for putting my music in your book. <laughs> they became great friends, and Carl uh, was a member of the Rock Bottom Remainers, this little rock band made up of best-selling authors who were hobbyist musicians. None of them say that they're very good, but they would play charity events. And Warren came, they asked him, he said, yeah, I'll play with you guys. So you have these big names like Stephen King, and Dave Barry and Carl Heisen and Mitch Album and his best-selling Amy Tan, this who's who of American writers, and they're all nervous because Warren Zevon's coming in to whip them into shape. <laughs> and they all became great friends, and he, he played the Miami Book Fair with them and everything. So the next album in rotation was utilizing all of these great literary buddies that he had. So he, they collaborated with him on that album. And I think that, that, you know, it's funny, early in his career, you're saying about how the self-titled Warren Zevon and An Excitable Boy are populated with this who's who of great rock musicians. Well, at the very end of his career, you have the symmetry right there. Yeah. His second-to-last album before he passes is a who's who of authors. Yeah. The yeah. other group he revered, there it is. So it's a yeah. bookend. You know?
2: So on October 30th, 2002, uh, he has a poignant hour, the entire show, with... David Letterman, um, it's, it's, an incredible it's, it's sublime. Um, what are your thoughts on, on, on that last appearance?
1: You know, he, he, um, he and Letterman had remained friends for so long at that point. Their friendship was 20 years old when that happened. And Warren made it very public that he was ill. You know, you had said how he used PR when he yeah. went into rehab in the 70s. He had told his wife, Crystal, to put out a press release and it seems like why would you want the attention he challenged himself if he knew his his fans and his you know and made it public that he yeah. was trying to get better almost what, pres-
2: once you say it it becomes real it, it has, has to, to happen, happen now mean, yeah,
1: yeah 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 i backed myself into this yeah, corner yeah, intentionally yeah, yeah i truly believe that he wasn't necessarily looking for the attention by making the announcement that he was dying i think he wanted to make it past the clock to finish the work he was given 3 months for the type of cancer he had, yeah, yeah. and luckily
2: he Danny lived. Gold- he lived for another year, but
1: uh, he lived yeah, for an entire yeah, year yeah. and finished an entire album and saw it get released and met his grandchildren. Yeah,
2: yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But,
1: oh yeah, well, but he was the, given the, ninety it, days. Yeah, and he went to Danny Goldberg and said, you know, and said, well, you know, maybe we can record if you want. You know, well, first they tried to talk him out of it spend time with your family. You know, yeah, this I is my therapy.
2: in order and all that. And uh,
1: the and usual says, is my yeah. mm-hmm. And I'm leaving this for them. Mm-hmm. So he kept, I personally think he would keep working because it would give him a reason to just keep going. So instead of, you know, finishing up a couple of songs that could be put on a best of after he was gone, uh, Warren he, goes public with how sick he is. He, All of his old friends show up in the studio, and he finishes an entire album while he's dying. Yeah, called the Wind. It's incredible. Yeah, the I, Wind. Yeah, the Wind yeah. is a masterpiece. He was going to have an incredible final album for Artemis if he was well, but it ended up taking on that, that's the entire theme of the album because he was diagnosed before he even started uh, working on it.
2: Yeah, it, it, it was finished with the, just two weeks before uh, before he died.
1: Yeah, uh, and it, it was goes able to be to nominated.
2: Uh, for five Grammys, uh, mm-hmm. and wins two, his first yeah. and only Grammys. Yep,
1: yeah. he got uh, for his collaboration with Bruce Springsteen. Bruce showed up instead of flying home for Christmas. He wanted to see Warren, yeah. and then uh, for the I think it was Folk Album of the Year. I got double check for the album itself. Yeah, and it was his only was. nominations and his yeah. only wins. Yeah. yeah, he didn't make it to that, but in all fairness, to the on Grammy. the cover, to the Grammy, yeah, yeah. On the cover of his first album, Warren Zevon, the spotlight behind him is he was standing outside the Grammy Awards when that photo was taken because he wasn't invited.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It all makes sense to me. A fitting end. A fitting end. uh,
1: But that that last album is incredible. And for anybody who wants to go back and look, it's got, you know, Jackson's on it, Henley's on it, Tom Petty showed up, Bruce Springsteen showed up. They all wanted to see him. And not for nothing, uh, Bob Dylan couldn't make it, but performed Warren's songs in his own concerts that entire duration. He put him into his set list because he knew his, his friend was dying. And Johnny Depp had offered to be on the album, but had to go filming instead. But had offered to be on that album. A lot of people wanted to be there with Warren for the end.
2: So we're we're getting to the end here. I got to I gotta ask, Is do you think he's one of those guys who, as time goes on, becomes larger through the mythology?
1: Oh, my God, it's coming right now, Christian. I'm being very serious that's not a grandiose statement Warren was going to have a comeback if he was alive anyway and all you have to do is look at Johnny Cash playing at the Viper Room before he passed away to see that Warren's style the way he wrote and again that persona would definitely have attracted a new generation of singer-songwriters who would have I think viewed him as the elder statesman you know of rock and roll he had that persona all the younger people that worked with him loved working with him Jackson started his own label after Artemis went under. You know Warren would have been signed to that and would have been doing podcasts with Jackson. He always embraced technology. He would have embraced social media. He went into chat rooms to see what people were saying about him. (laughs) He would have embraced it. And I have to add this. He was working on a musical when he died. And if you think about the completion of a musical by Warren Zevon and the fact that Bruce Springsteen was just on Broadway, there's every reason to believe that if Warren wrote a really funny, intelligent musical it would have hit around the same time as The Producers and Spamalot and that big revival. He was going to have a resurgence of interest one way or the other. It just happened in the saddest way.
2: Yeah, had he not passed away, he he, he would be 72 this year. So there was he still plenty of life going
1: on. Absolutely. He would, Bob Dylan is never going to stop. And Warren recorded his final song on his final album while he was on the couch with Last Few Breaths. So that's an artist that wouldn't have stopped either. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. All right. After seven years of dedicating your life to this project, what's next for you, Chad?
1: Am I allowed to tell you? (laughs) (laughs) I started working on my next book uh, the week after I finally completed this one. I wanted to keep the momentum going. And I'll be honest, Warren is a personal hero, uh, so I have to be more objective in who I write about. But I have a lot of rock heroes who represent different things to me. So I'm about a well, I'm not going to tell you how much, but I'm <laughs> I'm about a year into my yeah, biography. We don't, we don't
2: need any uh, George R. R. Martin uh, progress No, let's not do that. that. Don't, let's not don't ever ragged. turn out to be what they're supposed to be.
1: So. <laughs> no, I don't want anyone to finish it for me, but I am excited uh, that I'm working on a biography of John Bonham.
2: Oh, okay.
1: All right. So Into the
2: Hammer of the Gods. All right. You got All right. it, man. Oh,
1: right, right. So that'll right. be De Capo in... Uh, Oh, I guess uh, you'll
2: be talking to Danny uh, Goldberg again, then. <laughs> if I want to you,
1: well, Danny uh, has said that he would be willing to, to talk with me. And he's actually on his book tour with his Kurt Cobain book, which is magnificent. If you get a chance, that book was great. Yeah. He wrote a memoir about working with Kurt.
2: I think we'll be talking uh, talking with him uh, here shortly.
1: So. Well, tell him I said hi. He's awesome. <laughs> Big fan of his.
2: Chad Cushing, thanks so much for spending time with us today on Deeper Digs in Rock.
1: Christian, thank you for making so much time for me. This was a really, really fun conversation, and this is why I was looking forward to it so much.
0: If I leave you, it doesn't mean I love you any less. Keep me in your heart for a while. When you get up in the morning and you see that crazy sun, keep me in your heart for a while. There's a train leaving nightly called when all is said and done. Keep me in your heart for a while.
2: I really want to thank Chad Cushings for the great time and a great book on someone who shouldn't get lost in the rock and roll canon. Mr. Warren Zevon was a fearless artist, and like many fearless artists, he lived an unconventional life. He explored the depths of human emotions, and as others have done, felt he needed the real experience to talk authentically. Uh, It's what makes his music true. Uh, There's no affectation in any Zivon song. He knows of what he speaks. Uh, Chances are he lived it. He also never chased the business as business, but always as art, never surrendering to a more pop sound that was fashionable at any point in his career. As we have discovered, not an easy feat to do and still end up with a lengthy, relevant time in the music biz. Luckily, Warren always had the right people in his corner. I was very happy to read this book and have this interview with Chad on someone without uh, who I believe enough care and interest could be lost as the final rock cannon is being built. Glad we could help contribute to keeping you diggers at least interested in the werewolf of London. Okay. Until next week, when we will sit down to discuss women in music with associate professor of journalism and new media at Loyola Marymount University, Evelyn McDonald. We will discuss several of her books, most notably Queens of Noise, The Real Story of the Runaways, and Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl*. Okay, diggers. See you next week. And don't forget, always keep up the rockin'.
0: Roland was a warrior From the land of the midnight sun With a Thompson gun for hire Fighting to be done The deal was made in Denmark On a dark and stormy day So he set out for Biafra To join the bloody fray, through '66 and '7, they fought the Congo War with their fingers on their triggers, knee-deep in gore. Days and nights they battled the Bantu to their knees.
2: Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can, too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Kristen
1: Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios.